everybody. Investing Transforms welcomes Peter Bokvar, who is the CIO of the Bleakley Advisory Group and also the author of the well-named, I've got to say, Peter, good title of the book report. And Peter and I are going to talk about inflation. I'm not going to throw Peter under the bus by saying this because most people know that I am a card-carrying deflationist. And Peter, you know what? I've morphed to a disinflationist in the last uh, couple of years in the face of what we're, we're seeing. Look, I want to keep this as a discussion as, as, as you do. But I'm going to let you start off and frame the conversation, and I'll frame the conversation with, in one context. I'm a structural disinflationary guy. Why am I wrong? Well, I'll start by breaking out inflation between services and goods, because I think that it's, it's an important distinction. So for the 25 years leading into COVID, services inflation X energy within CPI annualized about 2.8%. So there's nothing transitory about services inflation. A lot of that, of course, is housing, education, medical care, insurance. It was the good side that kept the lid on overall inflation because the 25 years leading into COVID, core goods prices averaged zero. So you had no inflation at all on the good side. So I actually agree with you on the structural disinflationary side, but for goods only. But that's been going on since the history of time with technology improving one's productivity, production efficiency, and the ability to make more with less. That's been going on for thousands of years in some form or another. But that doesn't prevent cyclical bouts of goods inflation, which are now being married with a back to trend on services inflation. And I'll argue we're going to go above trend. And we're going to, we have a bout of inflation that's going to last a couple of years. And the question after this initial spike to what could be a 7% print by the time you get to February, because the comps are still easy until then, and then they get more difficult. And I agree that 2022, we'll see a moderation in the rate of gain of inflation, but I think it's only going to moderate to a 3 to 4% range from what will probably be a 7 print January, February. At some point, yes, yeah, supply chains will normalize and the cost of transportation will, will go down and so on and so on. But that doesn't mean that services inflation will moderate. That will continue at its upward trend. And to, to bottom line this, and then I can get into a lot of details on my inflation argument because I want to get more you know, granular with, with my argument here, is that let's just say we slow down to even a 3% inflation rate. The, the world is just not prepared for that in terms of global debt levels, the global level of interest rates, negative interest rates in, in Europe, certainly in Japan, uh, all this QE and asset prices that are valued uh, to the extent that they are, where at least in the US, net worth as a percent of disposable income is far and away where it was in March 2000 and the summer of 2007 and credit spreads that are extraordinarily tight and so on and so on. So we're not prepared for even 3%. The, world is, the world's economy is built on a foundation of one, one and a half percent inflation. And monetary policy is calibrated around that and global debt levels are as well. Now with that said, I'll get into some details on why I feel like inflation is not so temporary. So with the services side, I mentioned it's, we're, we're getting back to trend of about 3% year over year. But this is with a rent component, which is 40% of core CPI, housing is 30% of overall CPI, 
rank component that has not even come close to capturing what is happening with other metrics in the real world. One of the studies I like to look at on a monthly basis is the Apportment List National Report, where through October, its metric of rents are up 16% year to date. It was running up 1% to 2% per month for most of the year, while the Bureau of Labor Statistics, with their owner's equivalent rents and rents for primary residence, is telling us that rents are up maybe 3% year over year. Now, BLS will not catch up completely, but it will do some catch up. So services inflation is going to remain elevated well through 2022. Now, on the good side, I think that there's some structural things that will result in us not going back to a pre-COVID inflation world so soon. Number one, I think just-in-time inventory is dead. It was an extraordinarily efficient way of managing the world's global inventory chains, where you can just line up your assembly line just in time, get that finished product out, and things worked seamlessly. I think what COVID taught people is that they're going to need more things on their inventory shelves, which means that they're going to tie up more working capital, there'll be less inventory turns, less cash flow, and and likely higher prices as a result. Uh, You'll take the world's transportation system, a couple of structural things, the container shipping industry. Over the past five years, there's been massive consolidation in in the container shipping business where the top five players manage like 60 to 65% of that industry. I had owned Maersk for a period of time over the past couple of years. I'd recently sold it, but I saw this consolidation. So there's pricing power in that industry. You take the uh, the trucking industry, which is obviously a, a key source of pain in this transportation chain, particularly from the ports. Well, in 2019, in response to the Trump tariffs on China, which sent the manufacturing sec- uh, sector into recession, about a thousand trucking companies went out of business in 2019. Then you throw in COVID in 2020, 3,000 trucking companies went out of business. So there is a structural capacity problem in the trucking industry. So it's not just physical trucks, it's the 80 to 90,000 truck drivers that went off and did something else in, on top of what, of course, is a difficult lifestyle. So those are two key important points. Let's take dry bulk shipping. Well, when oil went to $150 in 2008, the the cost of of getting a a dry bulk ship, even though dry bulk doesn't take crude, takes more iron ore, takes coal, takes grains. Well, those prices collapsed when the commodity bull market ended, and you've had basically 10 plus years of no shipbuilding going on in dry bulk. I'm not arguing that those prices are going to go back to its 07 peak, but there's something structural there as well. And lastly, let's take air cargo. Now, this will probably normalize quicker than the others, but we know that a lot of passenger uh, airlines take cargo. Well, you've now reduced the global capacity for passenger flights because business travel is structurally reduced, at least for a period of time. Therefore, there's less capacity in air cargo, and that's why air cargo prices have gone up so much and the likes of FedEx and UPS have had such extraordinary pricing power. So I I think that you combine that and and you've got some more structural issues that's going to take time to work through. You know, talk about autos, of course, have been a high-profile spot of of higher goods prices and obviously 
the shortages of semis. Well, semi production is going to come back. But if you look at uh, Taiwan Semi's Arizona plant, that's not going to be fully up until 2024. It's great that Samsung just announced that they're going to build a factory in Taylor, Texas, but it's going to take years to bring that up. So yeah, at some point, things are going to normalize on the good side, but I think that it's not going to be really until 2024, but before we see some similarities to, to, to 2019. And then lastly, and I'll lead to a more back and forth with you, Paul, after this, is that look at let's look at the wage side. If you listen to young brands in China, their conference call, and we've seen this for the last couple of years, that wages are going up in China. China has been a major secular source of low-cost goods because of low-cost wages. Now, granted, some of that production has shifted to Vietnam and other low-cost places, but even in Vietnam, we're learning because of COVID, of course, that we're seeing a sharp increase in wages in Vietnam. Now, when when there's full capacity in a lot of these factories in Vietnam. Maybe we can see a reduction in the pace of those increases, but it's going to be really tough to give people wage gains and then try to take that back. So I argue that that secular trend the last 20 to 30 years of low-cost overseas labor is not there anymore. And in the U.S., we're seeing with Deere, and even we're seeing that with bigger companies paying higher wages that are non-unionized, but sort of have that same ripple effect impact. So Chipotle can pay $18 an hour, but that local restaurant is in deep trouble if they're paying their staff $18 an hour. Amazon, Walmart, Costco, they can pay their employees higher wages, but many smaller businesses can't. But that is raising the bar of of overall wages. Now, yes, companies can offset this through faster productivity, and over time, hopefully they will. But in the short term, they can't because the labor shortages are actually reducing productivity. I listened to probably 50 conference calls per quarter, all the companies I own stock in and and others. And I I like to use Kimberly Clark as an example of a well-established company that should have a pretty efficient supply chain. Well, in their last call, they said they need 40 people to do the work of 30 because of, of, of the issues, just getting people to come to work and getting enough people to do certain jobs. So I think that the productivity makeup of higher labor costs is not going to happen just yet. And companies are going to do their best to, to, to recapture that margin through higher price, prices. And that term recapture margin, I also heard a lot in conference calls that when you think about a company, particularly a small business that just got walloped with a 30% increase in transportation costs, they're not calling up Walmart and say, hey, I'm raising your prices by 30%. No, they're going to where they're going to spread out price increases over a multi-year period to try to, again, recapture margin. So I do think that even if a lot of the major supply bottlenecks begin to ease, automakers start to make more cars, I still think that this is a multi-year process of a lot of inflation in the pipeline that's going to work itself through that will lead to less temporary inflation that's not just going to normalize in 2022 or even in 2023. So that's my case. I'll throw it back to you. Thanks, Peter. That was great. And look, there's, there's not a lot I can argue against a lot of that, right? I would word it slightly differently. And, my, and the crux of how I'm going to push back on the debate is less about what you said and more about the consequences of what you said. And, and I would just make two points. I, so I think we can agree, generally speaking, over the long haul, 
the natural state of the of the world is a disinflationary state, as in innovation continues to be a disinflationary force globally for us. And I and I say this to people all the time. I'm in awe of what the global supply chain was able to do in the previous decade. Just in awe of it. We printed more money than in any time in human history. And I'm, as you know, I spent half my time in Chicago. And if the comment I'm about to make is probably going to see me kicked out of the out of the the three one two three one two relatively quickly. But what last decade proved was that inflation is not a monetary phenomenon, right? So inflation in terms of what the the metrics that drive policy is not a a monetary phenomenon. Asset asset inflation is a monetary phenomenon, for sure, right? Undeniably. But in terms of core CPI, right, that is not a monetary phenomenon because what you had was these incredible dampening effects from the global from globalization effectively, which were able to disperse all the money printing that we saw out of Europe, out of Japan, out of the United States. I mean, it was simply remarkable. COVID hits and we throw sand in the gears. And I'm a believer that you can have temporary pricing shock, which is effectively what, and you've said this as well, through through supply chain disruption, right? So what was was it all the money printing that caused the inflation that we have, or was it the Rotterdam port being shut down because of COVID or Singapore port being shut down because of COVID or tankers trying to do three-point turns in the Suez Canal and failing miserably, right? It's that, that sort of supply disruption that prevents this remarkably efficient system from operating is one of the causes of the pricing pressures that we've seen. And I think the only thing that we would differ on, you know, the length potentially of this transition. And I think what we're both saying here, Peter, is... And something we don't talk enough about is there's going to be a hell of a lot of COVID scarring after all of this, right? So, and again, we used to hear it after the the global financial crisis that there was scarring from the global financial crisis. And that was the reason why we didn't have, we had low capex and all this sort of stuff. And there was consequences and and lingering effects of the crisis. I think think what you've described are the lingering effects of, of COVID. Now, I tend to think that this process will work through more quickly than than you because I have this incredible faith in this in resilience in globalization and and the efficiencies that that can generate. But I think you're right on a couple of points. I do think I, the inventory in, inventory levels are going to be higher than good because Apple is going to have a cushion and Nike is going to have a cushion and you know and, and Walmart will have additional supply because. I don't know. I would. I don't know if I'd say that just-in-time inventory is dead, but we're certainly going to have a little bit more of a cushion just in case. Just as we'll have a little bit more cash in the bank and not put everything into share buybacks, and we won't optimize everything. So I do think that you know there is going to be effects, but I do have remarkable faith that the in the for the economy to bounce back. But I want. But I want to talk about one thing which you didn't discuss, which is. An assumption that gets made by people who are in your camp who think that this inflation is going to be less transitory than others, that somehow that will force the Fed to move, right, and force the force central banks' hands. I hear a message from global central banks that their tolerance for inflation is much higher than it has been previously. What and and I will make an argument that if you see if you, you see inflation like you see now that persists for longer and the Fed doesn't respond to that, 
that maybe there may be no consequences to that from a market standpoint. So I want you to talk a little bit about, and I'm going to make an assumption, I'm going to make that you, you think that the Fed is going to change its tune and the Fed's going to be forced to act and maybe forced to act at least in line with what markets are pricing. Is that fair? Well, before I directly answer that, I do want to take a step back as part of this whole inflation story is, yes, QE in itself did not necessarily cause this inflation, but since it financed essentially $5 trillion worth of spending, plus if you add in the CARES Act, the Trump bill at the end of 2020, and the almost $2 trillion that Biden passed in March of 2021, that more than replaced lost wages of the, of the checks that went out on top of the other sort of large government transfer payments, that that flood of money that was financed essentially by the Fed, it was that combination that created its financial tinder to show up in consumer prices. So I think, and, and we, ha- we, we have to, uh, I have to argue too, that it would be unlikely that home prices were up, would have been up 20% year over year if mortgage rates were in the 4% range rather than the 3% range. So I could, so when you think about monetary policy, its purpose is to push the demand side of interest rate sensitive parts of the economy, with the two biggest, of course, being housing and autos. So the Fed pushed as aggressively as they could be to convince people to buy homes because mortgage rates were so low. It convinced people to try to buy cars, even though there wasn't as much inventory, because financing a car was so easy, both from the rate of funding, but also the term where people nowadays can go out seven to eight years. And when you think about the price of a, the average price of a car is $45,000, and the, and, and the mean income in this country is not much higher than that. It takes a lot of income to buy a car, but through the gr- good graces of easy money, people can do it. So from those two direct interest rate sensitive parts of the economy, the Fed's policy has juiced inflation in those two areas. And they continue to do so. At the same time, there's limited supply of houses and cars. Right. But Peter, we've got, I've got, I've got 30 years worth of evidence that says that money printing globally doesn't work, doesn't create inflation. Well, I'm talking to the panic example, global financial crisis, European debt crisis one and two, QE one, two, three, and QE one, two, and two, and three didn't create inflation. Now, as you rightly say, it's- I'm talking about the interest rate sensitive parts of the economy. We have housing bubbles in every easy money part of the world. We have housing bubbles in Europe where they wanted to, they wanted to nationalize all the apartment buildings in Berlin because rents were going up too high. We had negative interest rates in Sweden and Denmark for a period of time, and banks were passing that on through higher mortgage rates, but you still had an explosion in home prices. And in Australia, that's inflation. Right, but it's not inflation. That's the thing. That, and this is where the definitions become really important, right? Because, and this is where the, I think the ideology of a lot of people, not, not, not saying this is you, but the ideology of a lot of people who are, who are inflation, inflationistas sort of lose sight of the fact that there is what I would call there's living inflation that you and I live every day. Yeah. Anyone who says there's no inflation in school fees doesn't pay school fees, right, or university costs or any of that sort of stuff. That's real-life inflation, and that is completely valid. There is asset inflation, and that is driven by money printing. You only have to look at the S&P versus the Fed's balance sheet to find that one out, right? 
But when we, but the trouble is that when we have the debate about policy, right, and the Fed's response to quote unquote inflation, the inflation metric that they have looked at historically is remarkably narrow, right? So asset prices going up, unless it is accompanied by sort of reckless lending standards, tends to be ignored. There has not been a debate globally, as far as I can see, from central banks in the developed world who are mentioning asset prices as a systemic risk to policy because the Fed, ECB, Bank of England, RBA, Bank of Canada, et cetera, et cetera, all look at a narrow definition of inflation. And the problem is that money printing has not historically affected that narrow definition of inflation, right? So for all the all the property price booms that we have seen globally, we've had for decade a decade suppressed CPI. You could look at, you know, you look at um, right. you know, right. again, goods, infl- okay. goods inflation versus housing prices. They've gone in different directions. I think we need to be careful about the definitions here. And because so, because no one's denying the asset inflation. Okay. So in the US, property taxes are not in CPI. But property taxes are basically a, an assessed value percent of the value of homes. My property taxes, now I'm in New Jersey, so maybe that's an outlier <laughs> because of the ridiculous property taxes. But my property taxes in the 20 years I lived in my house were up four to five percent every single year. And property taxes, I would argue, at least for people in New Jersey, outside of their mortgage, is probably their second largest cost of living where they have to cut a check every single quarter. Okay, so that is a direct increase in people's cost of living because the indirect impact of rising home prices into property taxes. That is not in CPI. Now, we know CPI captures rents as a way of capturing a cost of living increase via housing, but even that has obviously gone up a lot. So I understand your point about trying to differentiate between asset prices and consumer prices. But at least, again, in the interest rate sensitive parts of housing and autos, I believe there is a direct link. Now, is there a link between QE and the price of oil or the price of corn or the price of an auto? Well, auto, yes, but I'm saying in a semiconductor. Yeah, I understand that 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 is specious, but I'm talking about there are some direct impacts. And I'll say again, in housing, home prices wouldn't have been up 20%. If mortgage rates were higher and rents wouldn't have been up as aggressively if mortgage rates were higher. Now, to get back to your original question of how are central banks going to respond to this? Well, here is one of the one of the things about central banks is that they've been rooting for higher inflation for years. And I used to work for Larry Lindsay, who was a central banker in the mid-90s. I feel like I have a very good understanding of why at least the Fed went to a 2% target for their inflation rate that was then mimicked by the ECB, the BOJ, and all these others. There's no econometric model that points to 2% being the right inflation rate that would be sort of the most efficient um, way to run an economy. No. The reason why, and I'll focus on the Fed. The reason why the Fed wants a 2% inflation rate is because they assume that if it's 2% for a period of time, they'll have their Fed funds rate at least at that level or above, which would provide them with ammunition to cut rates 
in any subsequent economic downturn. That is the only reason why they shoot for a 2% target rate. Now, the, the, the implementation of that has been totally faulty because, well, if you want higher rates to cut in a downturn, then why do you sit there with rates at zero? Then they got into this whole average inflation targeting, which is one of the dumbest ideas I've ever seen, because why should an economy suffer through a period of high inflation just to satisfy the Fed's internal mistake of having inflation below that? I mean, inflation's a tax. That's what it is. So at 2%, let's tax everybody 2%. And if we actually tax people 1% for a period of time, well, then we're going to go tax them at 3% for a period of time to average it out. So here we have the inflation that they've all been wanting. Obviously, it's much higher than the levels that they were shooting for. And then how do they respond to this? Because there is such a tight connection now, and this goes back to the Greenspan days, of asset prices and the economy essentially interlinked, where there was a period of time when stock prices really just reflected underlying fundamentals and a lot of times discounted what the markets thought would be underlying fundamentals to the point where you had the 1987 crash and there really wasn't any much economic impact. Now, there's just this ancestral relationship between asset prices and the economy. And that you can definitely foresee, let's just say the Fed speeds up their taper and they end it at the end of first quarter instead of pushing it to June, and asset markets have a hissy fit and the S&P is down 20%, which it fell 20% after QE1, it fell 20% after QE2, so it's not unheard of. Well, you can imagine that that's going to have a direct economic impact because we know that I think it's 40% of consumer spending is done by the top 10 to 20% of, of income and asset, asset holders, that yeah, their tightening will eventually cause an accident, which will cause an economic downturn. But outside of COVID, those were the two prior recessions. They were driven by declines in asset prices. A collapse in tech stocks led to a collapse in capital spending. The fall in home prices led to a deterioration in the, the collateral, backing all these loans and, and that, were, that all these banks were filled up in and you had another recession. So I'll argue that, yes, the next recession will be driven by a decline in asset prices that don't just bounce back so quickly like people are used to in the past. So talk a little bit more about the linkages there, right? So for you, it's not an issue of cost of money rising leading to sort of declining corporate activity. It's the, it's the shock factor of a market correction that is the reason why we went into recession in in unofficially in 2008. Well, housing, if, if mortgage rates go four and a half, five percent, you, you will put a dead stop on the US housing market. Right. Fair. Right. And that's because that's, that stops refis, that stops refis in its tracks, right? And, but again, we still haven't looked at the Fed's response function to all of this. That's the issue. Now, outside of the notion of the market starting to price a higher risk premium into US fixed income and potentially the dollar, the dollar as well, of the Fed that's doing not responding to an inflation fear that the market has embraced. Talk a little bit about the Fed's response function, because I think I, I, I get the sense that you believe that the Fed's going to come to its senses and behave like it behaved in other cycles um, and have to say, stock market be damned, we need to respond to this. Or do you see the Fed reacting differently than they have in previous cycles? Well, I'll, I'll take a line from Won't Get Fooled Again by The Who. 
meet the new boss, same as the old boss. So yeah, Powell was renominated. He's the dumb, the most dovish central banker we've ever seen in the U.S. So they're going to do exactly what they've done and just look at their response function since, okay, they initiated, they, they introduced us to zero weight rates in QE and you know, late 07 into 08, where late, late 08 into early 09 was the QE part. And okay, they told us when QE1 was ending, they told us exactly how many bonds they were going to buy and, and the date it ended. And then all of a sudden the market falls and they're worried about growth and they start QE2. I mean, but, but QE, correct me if I'm wrong, QE1 was July 2011? 2010. 2010. Okay. Keep and then sure. and then QE1, I'm sorry, QE2 was hinted at in Sorry, uh, no, no, QE1 ended, ended, QE1 ended though, sorry. QE1 ended in, I think it was June 2010. June 2010. And the market yep. falls 20%. Yep. Or maybe it was March 2010. It was either March or June. No, it was March. And then we get to Jackson Hole 2010, and Bernanke's already talking about QE2. And then yep. QE2 ends, and I think it was March 2011. And then you have a sell-off. And then all of a sudden, you shift to 2012, and... They start talking about QE3. They try to tighten. They get to a point where something breaks, and then they back off. And look at look at fourth quarter 2018, where Powell was both shrinking the balance sheet and raising interest rates. And then we know what happened. And then he backed off. And then he started cutting interest rates. This is the same thing's gonna happen. They're gonna try to taper. As long as there are no accidents, they'll continue to taper. But until there's an accident, well, maybe they'll stop tapering. Or if they get through the taper, they'll talk about interest rate increases. And then something will break because we don't have normal business cycles anymore. We have credit cycles, credit cycles, credit cycles that ebb and flow with the cost of money and what the Fed is doing. So when you start to tighten credit, we will eventually end the cycle and then the Fed will back off. But this time around, because they have inflation to the level that we do, they're, to me, I'm more focused on what is their response function be going to be? Because I think it's, it's kind of easy to call what the response function will be now, is what's their response, response function going to be after the markets start to break if inflation remains elevated? Well, I think you've been I think they're headed to that fork in the road. I think you've. I think there's an easy extrapolation to what you've implied there, Peter. And that's. We'll put it this way: December twenty-two euro dollars are pricing in four hikes out to March, right? What you've implied is that we're not getting those four hikes out to March, because. And again, I'm making an assumption that maybe fifty basis points by September of twenty twenty-two is enough to break the market. I I, I don't disagree. I mean, just QE, I mean, QE, the iteration that we're in, is running at an annualized rate of $1.4 trillion. And not only are they, ta- they tapering QE, but the ECB is. I mean, we were reminded this week that the PEP program, assuming all is equal right now, is ending in March 2022. The Bank of England is likely raising interest rates. Next yeah. month. I think we, and, let's put the ECB to one side. ECB is I'm saying the, there's global monetary there. tightening happening all at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is my point. So people ask me, oh, when's the Fed going to raise rates? I'm like, I don't even know if they're going to get through this taper, let alone possibly raising interest rates. And if they do raise interest rates, I don't disagree 
that it won't take much to break things because just from a market standpoint, the valuations that we're sitting at are so elevated that it's not going to, it's only going to take a small change in the size of their balance sheet or cost of money to have a pronounced impact on things. Yeah. And I think, I think, mate, I think the best example is, you know, when QE ended, when the, the Q, when QE ended finally in 2015, sorry, when the Fed's balance sheet, when the Fed's balance sheet stopped expanding in 2015 and actually started to decline for, for a two and a half year period, equities did fine in that environment. Multiples didn't go right. up much. Multiples didn't expand, but profit, it was, but profit growth was fine. What, right? what, helped, that was though, what helped in between though was 2017, the market rallied all through that year. The VIX went to eight because it was all based on the corporate income tax cut, 35 to 21. So that allowed the market to disregard the change in QE and the change in interest rates. Because it was a crappy growth environment at the time. You know, 2016, 2017 was a pretty poor growth environment. But that was, but let's face it, that was that was the era, right? You know, the last decade was you know, globally, the growth environment was pretty benign, was below trend pretty much everywhere in the world, where the yeah, only deviation above that trend was fiscal spending. You know, US fiscal spending in US fiscal spending in 17, 18, German fiscal spending in due to the migrant crisis in, correct me if I'm wrong, in 2015, 15, 16, 2016. Which coupled with the whole the whole Shanghai Accord thing, which is the start of the start of sixteen, which was dollar dollar weakness and remimbi weakness at that stage. So no, mate, look, it's fascinating. Again, it's for someone who is you come across various as an inflation hawk, but you know what you've just told me is that the calmer things are, the higher rates will go. I think that no, the calmer markets are, the higher rates will go. Right, because the Fed now, granted. When the Trump tariffs in the middle of 2018 that bled into 2019, that led to a manufacturing recession, Powell cut rates in response to that. So now he also backed off because of the fourth quarter of 2018. But yeah, I think that the markets will, if, if they keep on rallying, if rates stay contained, they'll rally themselves right into the end of QE. They'll rally themselves right into rate hikes. It's only if they respond negatively do you, will you have the Fed back off. Because you know we learned a lot from the Fed when they talked about um, financial conditions as sort of being a key variable of what they look at, and they don't like when financial conditions tighten, and they love it when it gets easy. And I think the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index is at an all-time record low. But we know that an equity market correction or a wide name of credit spreads leads to a financial tightening. And that's what the Fed worries about, even though they create the foundation for the excessive prices. And then you're only naturally going to get a financial condition tightening when that falls because of the intertwine of, of stock prices and the economy. Yep. And it's funny you you say that. I mean, it's you know. I think we need to make the following point: that tapering unto itself is not a tightening of financial conditions. The consequences of tapering are a tightening of financial conditions. Right. I mean, when when you th- when you break down QE, a couple of things the way I look at it is: at the end of the day, it's just an asset swap. Right. It's here's cash to the bank. Let me buy your bonds, and that the bank then just sticks the cash back at the Fed. 
But what we've seen is that it it still has its impact on interest rates, and it, and and by keeping the cost of money low, it creates a hot potato for other assets and just juices the animal spirits and let's just take risk and it just raises asset prices sort of indirectly and psychologically. Now, the question is when they taper, is that tightening or just less easing? And I argue that if you look at a hot air balloon, if you push less air into the balloon, the balloon can start to fall and you push more air into the balloon, the balloon will rise. So the Fed is still pushing air into that balloon, but less air, and therefore it changes direction and can actually start to fall from the sky. So that's why I look at it more of a tightening situation more than just less easing, even though it's technically, I guess, less easing because they're still increasing the size of their balance sheet. But I argue, you know, less air going into the balloon can that make that balloon come down. Got it. Let's square the circle with all of this and talk about, again, going back to the Fed's response function, right? You basically implied the Fed's going to respond to asset prices, right? So the Fed can the Fed can articulate a strategy, but the implementation of that strategy is going to be based solely on the S&P and credit spreads. And to, you know, because that's, because that was the tightening of financial conditions. Predominantly, yes. Yes, because they, they would love to tighten financial conditions, but they want to tighten it their way. <laughs> which I think is the, the right way, sort of the way to say this, right? Even though you can make an argument that a 15% fall in the, in the, in the S&P and a, and a 40 basis point widening in, in, in credit spreads probably does, is probably worth it, tightens financial conditions and does what they're trying to do anyway, right? Because let's be clear here. The Fed is trying to tighten financial conditions. That's what raising rates is, right? It's, it's tight. They're trying to tighten because they believe the, the, the US economy and inflation scenario is currently too hot. Therefore, you tighten financial conditions and cool that down. Well, I think that econometrically, when they start raising interest rates, and also delusionally, I'll say, they think two things. The more guidance we give to the markets, the less of an impact. And the slower we go, the less of an impact. And they actually believe that they can taper and they can slowly raise interest rates and communicate it. And hopefully markets will adjust quickly and not fall because they think that they will slowly tap the brakes on the demand side of the economy. So the real economy, the real demand side of the economy is what they're actually targeting. They have their fingers crossed that they don't disrupt the markets. Now, Bernanke obviously got his finger burned with the whole taper tantrum. And that's why subsequent to that, they've made it intentional to go really slow because they don't want to disrupt the markets. They don't want to see a tightening of financial conditions via their tighter policy. Right. But you see how that doesn't make, that doesn't make, and again, that's probably why you use the word. I, I agree it doesn't right? make sense because they're intertwined. Yeah. But I'm just telling you, this is what they think. This is what their hopes are. You're talking about economists. You're talking about academics that don't even have quote machines in their offices. You know, the U.S. Treasury, the markets group of the U.S. Treasury got rid of all their Bloombergs during the, um, in the, last, uh, in the last three years? <laughs> I, I, I've heard stories that there was one Bloomberg in the, in the Federal Reserve in 2006, 2007, and it wasn't in Bernanke's office. <laughs> but yeah, I, look, I, I think that, you know, again, it's, 
if we were to do a, you know, if we were thinking if this was a, if this was an, an economic class on central on central banking, I mean, the contradictions that we're talking about here are just just ridiculous. Absolutely. You're talking about, you know, a Fed that wants to raise rates but not raise financial conditions, tighten financial conditions. I, right. I agree. I think there are internal contradictions all throughout Fed policy. They're perceived as this this noble group, but all they are is sort of credit dealers. They're just, I'm going to cut rates and I want you to go lever up. What's so noble about that? What's so noble about going to a savings-based and investment-based economy to let's just financialize the, the economy and just lever up? And let's make the cost of living so high that there's a portion of the population that can never actually own a home because home prices are going up so fast. And if they rent, well, hopefully they can find affordable housing because there's no chance they're going to get into a regular apartment because rental increases are up 5 to 10% a year. I mean, the damage that they've done, I think, is, is not scrutinized enough and helps to create a lot of these internal contradictions. Yeah, I mean, I, I have this argument, and I joke with my mother. My mother is seventy-eight, and she's she doesn't she's not with finance, doesn't really care about finance and stuff like that outside of her her practical living, practical living. But I keep I take the joke that she's uh, her and her friends are screwing are screwing her grandchildren because they won't accept you know the the you know, policy policy in the policy globally or sorry in the Western world is designed to make sure that the boomers and above are kept in the ways they're accustomed. And what that does is perpetually rising housing prices that price out, you know, price millennials out of housing markets. Yep. It's a, it's credit availability, which is dominated by the top 10%. And the top 10% is over the, you know, on average over the age of 50. You know, this is, you know, economic repression on it from a, uh, from a demographic standpoint of, of unprecedented levels, as far as I'm concerned. I, I agree. I agree. So we're going to get you out of here in a couple of questions. One question from the audience. Peter, do you think that a disruption to market is upon us within the next six months? And what are the red flags to that outcome are you looking for? Well, I never have confidence in my broad market calls, mostly more so on on specific investment ideas. But let's just look at what's happened in markets. And I'll get back to the, the example I was giving before with QE on and off or rates up and down. So QE one ended and the markets fell almost 20%. Within weeks, that correction started. QE2 ended. Within two weeks, a correction started, and we fell about 18%. Then fast forward, QE3 is tapered. It sort of ends around October 2014. S&Ps fall 10%. Then Janet Yellen raises interest rates. December 2015, January, February 2016, the markets fall about 10%. Then she backs off. Then she blames China. Then we have the election. She doesn't raise rates until December 2016. Then, then you have, of course, the market elevated in 2017 because of the, the corporate tax cut. But right after that, that uh, bill was passed, you had the Fed was raising interest rates in January, and you had the vol trade blow up in January, February of 2018. And then, of course, between the double tightening, we have the 20% sell-off in the fourth quarter of 2018. Then they back off. You have the rally in 2019. Then you had the Fed beginning to increase the size of their balance sheet in the fourth quarter of 2019 because of the whole repo thing, markets rally. So markets, it, in, in, with the benefit of hindsight, you buy things when the Fed's easing, when rates are at zero, and you lighten up when they're entering a tightening cycle. 
And that's just what we've seen. Now, how this plays out from here, we'll have to see. But that has been the sort of simplified playbook since the bottom in 09. Well, I am going to put you on the spot and say, where, where, how does 2022 play out? Because if, I, if I'm reading between the lines of what you say, it is that the we get to the end of this QE program, right, and we have some form of significant correction. You know, might be QE3, 10%, might be QE1, 20%, but it's going to be something. And I'm going to, it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, and that will be enough to get the Fed to pause for a period? Well, the problem, and does that imply that current fixed income pricing of four hikes out to March of 2023, that's off the mark because the, the inevitable correction in, in risky assets is going to mean that there'll be less hikes than are currently priced? I think that, so I mentioned before that the Fed was going to reach a fork in the road. And that fork is going to be when the S&P call it is down 20%. And inflation's still running at three to four percent. And are they going to back off from tightening because there's a tightening of financial conditions, even though inflation is still running three to four percent? Or are they going to say, you know what, we need to get this inflation rate back down to two percent because it's really hurting people? There's no doubt in my mind they're going to back off and try to save the S and P 500. But the, the, the casualty of that will be the U.S. dollar. And that then will enhance potentially inflationary pressures. And then they're in a real heap of, of trouble here of having to accept a decline in the market that will impact the economy, but also raising interest rates that quells inflation, but also impacts the economy. So I think we got a, a real quagmire situation that uh, we're headed for in 2022 because the Fed waited so long in tightening policy, let asset prices inflate to an even, even bigger levels, and not being serious about inflation, and actually being totally wrong about inflation. All of 2021 and the back half of the end of 2020, when they talked about its base effects, it'll be base effects, and then, then it was transitory. Oh, then it's not so transitory. And these are thousands of PhD economists that, um, that, that, that gave you know, the Fed staff that gave Powell his advice. Right. So just, again, we'll get you, out, get you out of here on this. The fork in the road gives them two choices. Save the S&P, quell inflation. What's prioritised in 2022? Oh, the first priority will be the S&P. But that doesn't mean that it works if inflation still remains high. Because if you're a long-end bondholder, okay, I mean, look at, look at the bond market this year. The, ten, the first quarter of 2021, the 10-year yield almost doubled with no change in Fed policy, no change in the rhetoric, no hinting at tapering or tightening. It was because, wow, these vaccines work. And that means the economy is going to reopen. And maybe that means there's also going to be some higher inflationary pressures. So the bond market adjusted for that. And I'll tell you, if I'm a long-in bondholder and I see that the Fed is more interested in the S&P 500 than inflation, well, I'm not going to be too happy and you're going to see a re-steepening of the yield curve. I mean, the yield curve flattens when the Fed is tightening, and the Fed and the yield curve is going to steepen if when the Fed backs off. And if that steepening means that the 10-year is going to go to 2 to 2.5%, because the Fed's not serious about inflation because they're more worried about the S&P, well, I'm not sure if they'll be able to save the S&P if the 10-year is going to 25 So it's going to be a pretty interesting year. 
to say the least. Peter, thank you very, very much. I'm going to leave you to it. This was a great thank conversation. We're going to have to get you back. I could talk about this stuff for hours. Peter, thank you very much. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate having me on.